1: Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side, as always, in the command center. And circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is reconnaissance officer, Karen. On this episode of Planet 8, we have a special guest joining us. Uh, live, although we're recording from Tippett Studios, Webster Colcord. Uh, you know, Webster's been in the industry working various effects, um, starting with uh, uh, California Raisins on through Pirates of the Caribbean. And um, straight away, let's kick it over to the Chief. Chief, why don't you give us some more details of Webster? And Webster, welcome to the program. Thank you, guys.
2: Yeah, I don't think I need to give too many details. So Webster can do that. But, uh, yeah, it definitely, it's really cool to have him here, especially since he's sitting in the middle of Tippett Studios as we speak. So, Webster, why don't you take us, like, way back to... Uh, I know your, your main love was always stop-motion animation. So why don't you talk about how your love started and how you got in the business?
3: How my love started, that sounds a bit like a George Bush misstep. <laughs> but anyway... Um, I should say also that I am not supposed to be out of the house, you know, during the pandemic here, but there's nobody at Tippett Studios and one of the great, um, you know, I, I've helped fill out a lot on his personal uh, art film, Mad God. So, you know, I, I kind of come here a lot to uh, to just use the shop and stuff and he's more or less OK with that. So. Nobody's given me permission to be here, but I wanted to get away. Any excuse to get out of the house these days, you know? And so, anyway, and I'm surrounded by... It's a good atmosphere for the show because I've got um, the dragon from Dragon Slayer is about 15 feet away from me, Vermithrax, pejorative. That's good social distancing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, for a dragon, you want to give at least 40 feet, given the fire. But anyway... um, uh, (laughs) She, has, she, she or he, it, she is holding up pretty well. Um, uh, it was in the possession of um, the director for a couple of decades, and then um, he sent it back up to, to Phil uh, a couple of years ago, and, and Phil had it restored. And so, um, so that's, you know, I still have to pinch myself whenever I'm at the studio, you know, animating on the computer, because, uh, you know, this thing that was so monumental from my childhood is just around the corner. But anyway, um, yeah, I got started in stop motion way, way back in the photochemical days of the 80s. I started really young, and I started with the, I started in a good place at the Vinton Studio uh, right after the California Raisins had hit big, and they were expanding to do uh, television specials for um, CBS. And so the first show I worked on was actually an Emmy-nominated, um, um, the Claymation Christmas special. So that was sort of my... My start, and of course, uh, start in the industry. And of course, I, I fell in love at a young age with uh, King Kong, and you know, same old story, King Kong. Uh, well, my, up in Oregon, um, where I grew up, uh, there were two channels. One was really fuzzy, and one was slightly less fuzzy. And they would do these sort of back to back like at least once a year, probably because they didn't have to pay anything for them. They had the prints already, and they were public domain. They would show King Kong, Son of Kong, and Mighty Joe Young. And so, of course, we would always, my dad and I would always uh, uh, set up, you know, for, for, for those uh, screenings, and, and that was really great. And he also took me to the drive-in to see a reissue of um, uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad when I was a little kid, and that just, you know, blew my mind when the Cyclops comes out the orange cyclops you know and so that that really um that really uh hit me and then i i also you know did uh, wanted to be a comic book artist when i was younger and so all you know same old story with a lot of these guys that you know had a garage and would do films and regular aid at home and and uh, later discovered video but uh, but i was lucky to get started pretty much a year out of high school uh working in the industry
1: interesting that's cool
2: yeah, that's amazing because we uh, last episode we introduced we interviewed uh, Jerry Conway who took over writing Spider Man from uh, Stan Lee and he was like nineteen or whatever at the time, so I'm I'm always amazed because I you know nineteen I was still sitting on the couch and watching TV and stuff.
3: Uh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Stan Lee, so you know back then in the eighties, the VIN Studio there there was no way to you know. people take CG for granted, but the only way to do a dimensional sort of cartoon to do a caricature in three dimensions animated was clay animation, you know, or some form of stop motion animation. But the kind of clay that the VIN studio was doing, which was sort of like a mad magazine caricature come to life, you know, that was really dependent on the artistic skill of, of, of that team. And so we were getting, you know, it was really a big deal at the time. Um, They had the, you know, the Domino's Pizza Noid, the California Raisins, the KFC Chicken. They were all over advertising and they had a few other, you know, short film properties. So everybody was calling the studio. And I remember the story going that um, Stan Lee called the studio and the receptionist answered. And when he said who he was, she said, Stanley who? (laughs) (laughs) anyway but so, he would talk to Will every once in a while about a project I don't think they ever did anything but
2: that would, that would have been interesting so yeah. I mean the let's say like that Christmas special was probably what half an hour yeah and then how long did that actually take to animate
3: it took about um, it took about a little less than six months and it was a, with a pretty big team um, and I think normally in those days, I mean, it can be done more quickly than that. Like I worked um, a few years ago, I worked on the stop motion episode of the NBC show, Community, which is really quite a funny episode. It's the Abed's Uncontrollable Christmas. And we shot that, uh, not with Clay, but with uh, you know, stop motion puppets. And we shot that in about, I wanna say a little over eight weeks, um, which is very quick. But it can be done quickly like that. Like the old um, Gumby episodes were done very quickly. But um, with the Claymation Christmas, I mean, it's very involved. You know, a lot of re-sculpting. It it takes a bit longer than other animation processes. So it had a pretty lengthy schedule and a pretty big crew. So i say a little bit under six months.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, Clay is probably a lot different than working with, like, models. Yeah. Because you can't just keep bending it all over the place, right? I mean, eventually the arm's going to fall off or a leg's going to crumble or something.
3: You pretty much have to make a new puppet per shot because, you know, you were re-sculpting it as you go. It's just a lump of mud, essentially. And um, one thing that would tend to happen is that you're looking, you know, through the camera or close to through the camera while you're animating and the, the sculpture of the face would gradually morph into a sort of more two-dimensional um on a, on a flat plane so that, you know, because you were always sculpting to camera by the end of the shot, the, the, the whole head would kind of be warped. Um, so that if you look at it in three dimensions, it wouldn't make much sense. But if you look at it from camera view, it, it, it looks good. Um, so pretty much you have to throw away, um, you know, the puppet per shot and build a new puppet. So yeah, it takes more time.
2: So you must go through a lot of clay when you're doing that. Mm.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're tiny, but, um,
2: and then all the the backgrounds that was all probably a combination of painted and models or well i mean it
3: depends on who was um designing it like uh, will had a thing about a pure clay world but it really wasn't feasible and it didn't make a lot of sense a lot of the time i mean we built some uh, amazingly huge sets that were built uh coated at least in in clay and they just weighed a on. Uh, eventually, the studio moved into a more sensible, um, you know, into a more sensible materials, and, and would uh, tend to, be, you know, build the build the sets more out of just pure wood or foam or things like that that were more lightweight and and aesthetically sort of more controllable. You have more ability to adjust uh, color when you're not coating a layer of clay on. But for a long time, we did actually, you know, everything had that clay aesthetic because there was a layer of clay, you know, for a brick wall, it would be a, a a piece of wood with, you know, big old half inch thick layer of clay on it. It just weighs a ton.
1: Wow. How Different things are done now as opposed to then. I mean, I only read about what you do. I, you know, I don't, I'm not involved in the industry at all, Webster, but um, in one of the conversations we were having before the show, when you said that ILM doesn't have a a shop anymore, um, er everything's done um, CGI or or through computer now. Is that right? Well,
3: I think the context for that little conversation was um, just talking about what it's like at – tippet studios now and Tippett is is very much is tippet still has a stage building it's in, uh, pretty much in two buildings one is uh, more of a cla- more of what you think of as a modern cg facility and the other building is the stage building where phil still shoots and is still used for doing things like scanning models and shooting elements uh... or even shooting uh, live action or doing our own motion capture on the stage here but um... it really is more reminiscent of like the way ILM or some of the shops with um, some of the VFX houses with a, a stage uh, used to be. And when the, um, when Dennis Muren comes by to visit Phil, you know, of course they go way back. Um, yeah. you know, every, they're always sort of excited to be around the, the physical stuff again, but it's, um, it's completely different now. You know, um, uh, your average VFX house is basically like, um, an office building. Um, it looks, typically like any internet um company or game studio um it's just a bunch of people at machines there might be an area for shooting motion capture there might be an area for um taking photographs but that's about it it's pretty boring
1: i'm wondering webster like you know one of one of the first professional jobs uh you're saying was the california raisins commercial um you were involved in that. How long did that take in, in total, you know, from the, I don't know if you got into the model building or if you just animated the figures, but I'm just curious how long that segment took. It was a TV commercial. So it wasn't, you know, it couldn't have been more than like two or three minutes, right?
3: No, no. 30 seconds. Um, oh, wow. And those would on average take about eight weeks, uh, eight weeks was huh. a pretty decent schedule for a 30 second commercial. Um, and I should say, I did not work on the first California Raisins commercial that was directed by Bill Feesterman, and it was, who's, um, who's still in Portland, um, still is very active on Facebook. He's a, mm. one of the guys who's most responsible for what you think of as the Vinton studio style. He's a terrific um, uh, caricature artist, uh, graduate from the Arts Center College of design in pasadena i believe that's correct and um you know just classical caricature work in the style of a mad magazine and uh, he directed that first california raisin spot that became so popular but it they didn't think that it was going to be a big deal when they did it you know and uh he actually kind of felt well i don't want to get into this but he um he thought it. I think he felt like it could have been a, a better commercial. Um, we all, you know, we always feel that way about our own work. But if, um, if you look at the spot, it's fairly simple. Um, and even some of the characters, the raisins, they just kind of slide around. They don't actually like do a lot of action. Um, so then, when they hit huge, uh, they did another spot afterwards with the guys on the construction um, uh, opening their lunches and seeing the raisins set up like a a Motown act inside the lunchbox and that was much more involved and because the that first spot just was huge was you know people all over the country were putting trash bags on and uh, (laughs) dressing up like the raisins for their high school uh, acts and stuff like that you know it was big but eight weeks is what it took to answer your question.
1: Yeah, I, I'm wondering, so if, if you were to or if they were to render something like that using today's technology, what do you think a turnaround would be? Would it still be eight weeks or I'm thinking it would be shorter amount of time?
3: Yeah, I mean, the thing is that uh, computers are fast in terms of getting something out the door that looks, I would say, fairly mediocre, but gives you a, a pretty good idea of what it could be. Be very quickly. So, like, I do a lot of previs work, previsualization work, and it's very easy to get ready-made models off the internet um, and put something together in a matter of, of uh, a day to show a client, you know, what the final spot could look like. So, to get something fully rendered, again, and it wouldn't look as good or wouldn't look the same as um, the claymation work, but to get something rendered. You know, like like that first California raisin spot in in CG would would take a lot less time, but it's still like I said, it doesn't have the same tactile feeling. I mean, right. computer animation is a different different animal. Although there have been experiments done to make it look like clay that are, that have been somewhat successful.
1: Hmm. You know, all of us here on Planet Eight are huge fans of Ray Harryhausen. I'm guessing you were a a pretty big fan yourself, uh, growing up.
0: Yeah.
3: Huge fan. And I got to, in 1988, I think it was, I went to San Diego comic con with, uh, one of the Benton producers and with uh, spike from Mike, the late, uh, um, sorry, the late Mike Gribble from Mike and spike. Mm. Um, and I was on a, pa- I have pictures to prove this, but I was on a panel with <laughs> at, the, at the San Diego comic con. And, uh, Yeah. And that's a whole nother thing, but I was blown, you know, blown away. That was the first time I met him. And then later when he was, um, the year he got his, um, honorary Oscar from the Academy mm-hmm. will very smartly brought him up. Will was doing, I think this was the second year it happened, but will was doing this thing called the Portland creative conference where he would bring all these people from various creative industries into town for this terrific, uh, like three day conference. And he brought Ray, the year he got his honorary oscar and he treated ray very nicely and ray did a a whole talk at the studio and hung out for a couple of days and i was shooting a play-doh commercial at the time and they brought ray into my set which was just i still i don't i don't have pictures to prove that but that's just you know that's mind-boggling
1: no that's cool
2: what's it like to have ray harryhausen looking over your shoulder while you're animating
3: well he wasn't he wasn't critiquing me, so it was fine but but um, it was just really it was awesome you know just to you know have him there i mean he he does, he, he would make himself very available you know to fans everywhere uh, you know he was always uh, you know very outgoing in in terms of uh, uh, interaction with fans but um, what was cool. But at the same time, like, he kind of has – he kind of had a shtick, you know. You would hear the same stories again and again. Of course you would. You know, he was a showman, um, and you wouldn't – you know, you don't want to ad-lib every time you're doing a, a presentation to a group of fans. So he kind of had the same stories again and again, but what was cool was we hung out with them at the Vinton studio long enough that we got past some of the um, sort of, you know, normal stories and got into, like, a bit of – on Clash of the Titans, how – like what kind of made him want to retire during production on that? Like he had a lot of difficulty on that show, and he talked a bit about um, uh, the difficulties with, like he was set back something like six months on that show because he was having trouble with some of the stock uh, registration from Kodak. The the registration of the perforations wasn't uh, was causing problems in the in the in the final shots, and so that really uh, threw a wrench in the works. And I think, uh, yeah. So we we got some different stories from him because we spent a lot of time with him.
2: That's great. So I guess eventually you had to make the transition to the CG world and all that. What was that like? Or was that, I mean, obviously you had to leave Vinton to do that somewhere else.
3: Well, I mean, you know, the life of um, an artist or an animator, I mean, artists or animators are artists, but the life of, um, sort of a commercial artist is, uh, fraught with ups and downs and you, you end up being, uh, having kind of an itinerant lifestyle. Um, so I was at the Vinton studio through one round of layoffs and then I was freelance for a while. And then I had my own company in Portland. Um, and eventually I was very successful with my own company, but, um, there was this point in history that won't, happen again where uh, well, I, and I would worked on James the Giant Peach, so I'd, I came down um, in 1994 to work on that film in San Francisco for three or four months um, just sort of as a fill-in animator and there, was, there were two camps at Disney there was um, a camp backing James the Giant Peach and there was a camp backing Toy Story uh, the Pixar guys came by and visited one evening. We had a little party. Um, everybody in the animation world knew John Lasseter's short films and knew that and expected that it was going to be a great film because he's just a great filmmaker. But I think Disney, you know, the executives um, were unsure that a computer animated feature would would hold audiences' attention for the full length of the film. So uh, there were there were doubts. Um, but after Toy Story was a huge success, uh, all of the studio and then DreamWorks uh, started to form the famous, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Spielberg, Geffen partnership that stole a lot of people or lured a lot of people over from Disney. There's a, you know books written about this. When that happened, and the studios were starting up their uh, expanding into the animation business and transitioning into CG they were, the studios were all really heavily recruiting for animators. So anybody, any animator with a pulse could get a pretty well-paying job in CG animation if they were willing to do the transition, and you would get uh, paid while you were being trained. So, like I said, that's probably never going to happen again, Um, but at that time, it it was really interesting. There was a lot of competition in the marketplace, and so... You know, I was in Portland and I was talking to uh, all of the uh, studios. So I was talking. I remember, you know, I got a phone call from Phil Tippett. I got a phone call from the Pixar folks. I got a I was, uh, you know, at a recruiting thing up in uh, Canada for um, Sony Imageworks. They were going to do Dynatopia. Um, and and then there was Dream, DreamWorks. And I ended up choosing to go, you know, uh, to close my company and going to DreamWorks, uh, in Palo Alto. And the thing was, it was, um, I had done a bit of computer animation with some guys. Am I going on too long here?
2: (laughs) No, no, we've got an hour. No, no. You're you're fine.
3: (laughs) Okay. So I'll, uh, I'll try to make it short, but, um, I was, I had done a bit of computer animation with some guys in Vancouver, Washington. There was a company that's still around, I believe, uh, run by a guy named Martin Hash. And if you talk to the computer animators, they all, the hardcore old computer animators, they all know this software, it was called Animation Master. And it was one of the early Amiga-based and then eventually, PC-based three um, D animation programs, and it was all the, all kind of done by the small group of engineers up in Vancouver. And it was actually fairly advanced at, for the time. And when I went to, so then I I had, I'd chosen to go to DreamWorks PDI down in Silicon Valley, and I had no idea, you know, what I was getting into. I had to, you know, learn Linux and or <laughs> no Unix at the time, and and even compared to the PC or Amiga-based system from the guys in Vancouver, like PDI's animation software was pretty arcane and archaic, you know, like you actually had to animate with a spreadsheet. And some of the people there still animate with a spreadsheet. Um, so it was kind of like Pixar's software, but it was a, a few years less evolved. And um, so it was... In addition to having to transition from working by myself, you know, directing my own commercials and dealing directly with clients, and you know, transitioning from stop motion animation to to, to the way of working in CG, you know, I had to, you know, learn to work in a, in a larger studio uh, structure. It was really. Uh, a nightmarish (laughs) experience but i learned a lot fast you know oh and and on top of that it was this was um dreamworks was trying to beat pixar to the market with um ants versus bugs life so i was in the middle of that too (laughs) wow yeah it was crazy crazy times
2: i mean you think back then and it was like the big advance in in cg was like dire straits money for nothing right with the blocky square characters walking around and then you look at how far it's come to today it's amazing
3: well that was a few years before that was a few years before uh this would have been um 97 and so money for nothing was a few years before that uh let's see what would have been the contemporary uh for that time like Like PDI DreamWorks was one of the studios that had done a CG version of the Pillsbury Doughboy. So they were um, sort of on the forefront of that. Um, Casper had just happened at ILM, or maybe, no, Casper hadn't even been done yet. They were they were doing Casper, I think, around the time that we were doing Ants, I want to think. Maybe it had been done. I'm not sure. I, and I know the... Yeah, go ahead.
0: I just think always the first movie that I saw where I was really impressed with CG was probably Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that was early 90s. I probably should look it up.
3: I'm going to go ahead and look it up, even though I'm sitting here with, you know, the, the dinosaur see. input devices are downstairs, actually. Uh,
0: here. 1993.
3: Oh, there you go okay so yeah. that was earlier
0: interesting yeah
2: because Phil was heavily involved in Jurassic Park right
0: oh yeah totally yeah but yeah that was like the first thing I remember seeing where I was really sold on it and even you know even now going back and watching it when it comes on it's like uh, and I know some some of it there was practical effects too but uh, the parts where it's clearly CG it still looks pretty good yeah,
1: yeah. oh it and, still holds up the, today definitely yep yeah.
3: Yeah. And Phil was, you know, um, they had planned to do it. You know, well, the whole story is out there of of how they you know, were planning to do it with some go motion, you know, combination of stop motion and go motion puppets. And Mm
2: then,
3: you know, when they decided to go, when Spielberg decided to go with the the risky CG and it really was a leap of faith because, you know, the first test wasn't a fully rendered dinosaur with a skin. It was just a skeleton. You know, walking—it's a very crude test by today's standards—and yet he decided that, uh, you know, he'd take the leap of faith and, and trust that they could get it looking, you know, something, you know, realistic. And um, and Phil adapted very, you know, resourcefully. And one of the things they did was, along with Craig Hayes um, and Tom Saint I believe, they built these uh, physical. Puppet rigs that were like armatures with all of these encoders attached, so they could animate the dinosaurs with a stop motion like skeleton uh, um, in physical space, and input that data into Softimage to 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 do, you know, to to get the animation done. And Randy Dutra was one of the animation animators on that as well.
0: Oh,
1: okay. um, that's cool.
3: And those uh, those are downstairs, actually, in the building here.
1: That's all. Yeah, I, you know, I don't want you to. Break any rules or anything, but if you could snap a couple of pictures for us when we post the episode, <laughs> we can throw it up on the uh, on the on the webpage. Um, sure. Of course, you, you need to. It needs to be a selfie. Uh, so you, you, yeah, yeah, work that out. <laughs> um, you know, as with some of the older films, you know, some of the older dinosaur films where they just plop in some lizards with some uh, prosthetics glued onto them. Hopefully, not hot glue. Um, some of the CGI and and Jurassic Park, I think, is like uh, the, one of the crown jewels in, in computer animation. But it's it's that second mummy movie with with The <laughs> Rock. What was it called? That was just some of the worst CGI. Oh, the, that what? Scorpion King. Scorpion King. Yeah. Oh, I my it. gosh. I, I don't know what happened if they ran out of money or if they
3: no. I do know what happened from from some guys I worked with. I worked at a company, a great company, a VFX company called The Orphanage in San Francisco for quite a number of years, and uh, and it was down the street from ILM in the Presidio, or you know the, the later ILM location in the Presidio. Right. Um, and we would, you know, hire a lot of ILM ex ILM or sometimes ILM freelance people. And so I worked with a lot of people who had worked on the Scorpion King, including an animator, a bunch of animators. Um, or it wasn't the Scorpion King movie; it was the Mummy Two, right? And the Scorpion right. appears at the end. Right. Um, and you know, I've been lucky in my CG career to not have anything end up on one of those YouTube compilations like the worst CG, ever, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> which are unfair in a lot of ways. Because, um, like with the example with cats, like the decision to oh yeah the decision to put actors in for you know, augmented with CG or replaced entirely with CG, um, except for their faces, and not really understanding like what is the scale of the cat in the relation to the world, or having a change. All of those decisions are made at a higher level mm-hmm. than than the, the artist doing the CG work. You know, so it's really unfair to blame the VFX for you know a creative decision that is bad. You know, um, so with. Uh, so I've been lucky not to have anything on one of those worst CG ever reels, although I have worked on some things that I would say are pretty bad. But I won't mention them because I don't want them to end up on the reel. <laughs> but, but that Scorpion King is always on those reels. And mm-hmm. the deal with that was, which was, and it was done at ILM, was he was originally, and this is a classic, you know, this happens a lot, um, unfortunately. But he was going to be a background character and just like appear in shadow and then at the last minute the director said i want him front and center you know like medium close-up and so the model and it it was like it was a hellacious movie to get done i mean there was a lot of stuff in that movie and and uh they were strapped for time and they didn't have time to like remodel and retexture and re-rig the characters so they just ended up with this thing that was supposed to be in the background Right up front and center, and there was just it just didn't hold up. It just you mm. you know CG. You have to build, especially in those days, you have to um, you have to build it from the, the beginning to have all of the controls built into and and musculature built into a very sophisticated rig for it to move correctly on top of the. Topology of the model being sculpted to hold up at high fidelity when you're close to it, plus the textures, you know, and the hair. I mean, all of it. it it's you know, it's gotten easier over the years because the computers are faster, but it's still really hard to pull that all off. And so, you know, when, when you take an asset that's meant to to be you know in in the distance and is designed for that, and you put it close up on high resolution, it's it's just going to fall apart
1: right that, that makes total sense and i think i'll be a little more tolerant uh of the effects in that film but it was something like that that really you know took us out of the movie and now you know i i uh i appreciate the background on that um
3: well i mean it still happens too i mean like you know look at the i mean people have forgotten about it already but look at the black panther when it came out i mean people were complaining about how bad some of that cg was there's yeah. some atrocious CG toward the end of the movie. Um, mm. And luckily, you know, it was still a successful movie, but people did complain about it. And it just, you know, it has more to do with uh, schedule and, uh, and changes, you know, right. it seems to be part of the culture now in Hollywood. It's always been part of the culture there, but to, to think that just changing things is a good idea. Yeah. So you tend to get these changes at the eleventh hour in the schedule, and there's just no way, you know, you can get pull something off at a high level. Almost no way to, to do that every every time.
1: You know, right. It was schedule. such a, a, a contrast between the mummy reanimating. I mean, that that still holds up today. You know, yeah. his, his uh, transformation back into his human form, and, and you know, and then the Scorpion King. I, let me ask you: Do you have any information on the uh, Will Smith version of I Am Legend? it's so
3: funny that that you ask that because you talk about worst cg ever and and that also ends up that's like the number one contender um and and actually i do completely know the story on that and i was thinking about that when i mentioned the scorpion king actually the the guy who was the anim one of the animation supervisors supervisors on that for sony is an old friend of mine who i'd worked with at, at dreamworks and he said that that show the effects ruined his career because mm-hmm. again you know those characters were going to be seen in the distance and in crowds and he he had was working with the team there to to design these sort of crowd cycles to um to have those characters in the background and i believe that i'm not sure if that was because the facial close-ups were going to be done with you know with uh, prosthetics or not although there are some amazing tests on steve johnson's um Instagram or something from a couple of years ago, or actually it's not Steve Johnson, but there's some tests on the internet from Steve Johnson's company at the time doing um, animatronically augmented prosthetics. So, what they had was a sort of a cable or radio controlled um, headpiece that went down over the eyes and used the real actor's mouth, but with uh, sort of radio controlled eyes, and it looks amazing. But for whatever reason, they decided not to go with that, and they took – and I don't know if that if this is exactly the timeline of events, but they took these characters at Sony that had been designed to be in these you know, running crowd scenes, and they did exactly the same thing with the Scorpion King. And they said, no, we're going to do them all in CG. We're going to put them front and center. And so um, it wasn't so much that the asset couldn't be redesigned to, to look good up close, but it was just sort of the bad decision to go with the old um, – sort of standby of, like, a character's mouth opening impossibly wide, you know, or long, you know, and it's just creatively a bad call, you know. Um, They did that also on Planet of the Apes, the uh, Mm. Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. They did, uh, ILM did, you know, some of the apes roaring, you know, with sort of impossibly extended mouths, you know. You know, when you have nothing else to sort of – go with you sort of end up with that yeah. you know well it'll be weird because the balance will be extra big and, and they just took it way too far on I Am Legend I mean they've, it's ridiculous yeah
2: well I think that kind of stuff has been going on like forever I remember reading a story yeah. Yeah. about uh, it conquered the world and uh, the alien was supposed to just sit in the cave and do everything from there and then Corman at the last minute said no bring him out he's got to fight the army and Exactly. So it was, it was just like a big road cone sliding across the thing so.
3: <laughs> exactly yeah it's nothing new sadly hmm. um but the i am legend one was uh i can't i wish marco could speak for or my, my buddy I, maybe i shouldn't mention his name but i wish he could um speak for himself on this but yeah it uh it it had repercussions you know the, the poor guy um but he's been successful since then so uh no complaints.
1: Let, let me ask you this, Webster. What are some of your favorite projects or films that that you uh, worked on?
3: Well, um, a lot of the time, like, you know, there's there's a couple of old sayings in Hollywood. Um, but one of them, well, I, um, you, you tend to know. When based on the script, you know, we, even with the VFX guys, you, you end up getting the script early on to, to go over it. And, um, and you can pretty much tell in the script stage, whether it's going to be a good movie. Um, obvious, it, it seems like that's an obvious thing, but it's, it's oftentimes not obvious, um, that that would be the case. But, uh, there are certain projects that I've been lucky enough to work on that, uh, we're, were obviously going to be good right out of the gate. Um, the ones that come to mind right off the bat are uh, going sort of backwards in time are um, uh, not because I read the script, but because of um, the creatives involved. Um, the Deadpool movie, the first Deadpool movie, mm. at Ted, uh, the first Ted movie, and uh, The Host, which is Bong Joon-ho's uh, a monster movie from uh, 2008 so so now going forward so i was the animation supervisor for the orphanage on the host and based on you know his track record we just knew it was going to be a, a great movie he's just a great even back then you just looked at his previous films like memories of murder and he's just a fantastic filmmaker and right. and that movie would yeah. that would, movie would have been good even without the monster it was a great movie so we just had to not can i swear
1: uh, it, it's more like PG, but you know, a <laughs> s- screw up, <laughs> avoid a screw up would be an exception.
2: Well, yeah, uh, I, I, I can say. bleep
1: we stuff. So. Screw it up. <laughs> yeah, Bob will beep if needed.
3: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, no, I'll just say we, we just had to not screw it up. But um, that's not the word we used when we were talking about it. So. <laughs> uh, and then going forward in time, uh, much later, I was the uh, on set person. Uh, previs and later the, uh, mocap guy for Seth MacFarlane on the, the first Ted movie. Mm. And the script was great. So, uh, and then they improvised on set and you just knew that was going to be a, a great, uh, a great thing. So, and then later, um, I came back to the Bay area. I, so I spent about four year, four or five years in, in LA, um, after the first Ted movie doing a lot of work for Seth MacFarlane, And then, uh, moved back up here to the Bay Area to work for some old friends, uh, on the first Deadpool movie. And that again was one situation where you just knew because more because of the people associated with it, that it was going to be great. I mean, um, the, the director, um, who runs, uh, Tim, uh, Tim, Tim, uh, who, he, we had worked uh, with a lot of folks who had worked with him before because uh, he's been running, Tim Miller has been running his own VFX studio and animation studio in Hollywood for decades, Blur Studio, and they do a lot of game cinematics. And we, he, he's highly respected in the CG uh, industry. And so we knew that that he would bring a great thing to it. And uh, and then the character, of course, is, is one of the sort of unsung heroes of the Marvel universe. So we all... We all that was another show where we just um, and we were working with a VFX soup uh, Jonathan Rothbart who we had worked with a lot over or at the orphanage. He was one of the uh, founders of the orphanage, so um, it was just a great opportunity to be associated with a, a great project that was really fun, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, and we just had to also uh, again not screw it up. And actually, um, I'm very proud of the work we did. We did the freeway chase sequence and a bit of the following sequence where he. Um, uh, has a fight on top of the uh, uh, elevated uh, freeway. Very with cool. the bullets, the counting down with the bullets.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that scene.
3: Yeah. So those are three projects that I'm super proud to be associated with on the on the CG side of things.
1: Very cool. Uh, let me ask you something. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the The Walking Dead, and uh, the season finale. Uh, is postponed Um, they made an announcement uh, on on the television program the next to last episode they're like we don't have time to do the visual effects the music and all the cleanup and stuff um, that they do Uh, and and so it's going to be released sometime sometime after the shelter in place um, is this um, shelter in place affecting your guys's ability to? I don't know if you're working on any projects. And you don't have to disclose, you know, anything. Uh, I don't want to get you in trouble. Um, but how's that um, affecting your ability to do your work right now?
3: Well, I should uh, going back a little bit. I should mention that um, at Atomic Fiction, which is the 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 sort of the um, the group of folks from the Orphanage whom I work with. I came up back from LA to work with. Um, in Oakland um, mm-hmm. when they sort of reformed to make this new company again called Atomic Fiction to work on Deadpool one of the projects we worked on a couple of times there we, we did some shots for the Walking Dead TV series and you oh. know it was just kind of one of these things where they would they would farm out various like you know augmented blood or um, sword replacement shots uh, right. to various VFX houses it's fairly simple work um, but um so they send it out to a lot of different places. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that's really interesting about that show and exciting is it shot in 16 millimeter. Uh, I don't think many people in the public know that, but they, what they were testing early on uh, whether they wanted to shoot digitally or on film, 35 or, or 16. And they ended up going with Super 16 because I think one of the reasons is um, they're shooting in a lot of very light – Intensity because they shoot a lot outdoors and you get right. a better dy- dynamic range. You know, film is able to handle that better than, than uh, you know, digital. Um, and then on top of that, being 16 millimeter, it sort of takes the kiss of death off of some of the makeups. Like it's a little bit softer. And so it gives you a, um, a better sort of more, you know, it takes the edge off the makeup. You don't have to, you're not, you're not seeing every little, um, uh, edge of the prosthetic, you know, like you mm. would if it's a digital show, and also it kind of has a more gritty feel, you know. So that uh, that's a right. huge uh, contributor to the success of that show. In my book, is, is the yeah the that's
1: shot. interesting too.
2: Now, when are, are other shows shot that way, or is it just?
3: Uh, there's a few others. Um, I can't name them offhand, but but Walking Dead is the biggest one. And Kodak, as a matter of fact, opened up a film lab in Atlanta. Uh, to, to oh, help you
2: know yeah i got yeah. kodak was probably saying we're saved <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, it, that's not enough to save kodak but it's one of the yeah. big pieces that uh you know it, it helps for sure yeah. uh, there's still a lot of stuff being shot on film and there's sort of a resurgence in that and um christopher nolan is a big advocate of film he sh- tries to shoot you know everything on film when he can oh
1: uh,
3: yeah yeah so uh so walking walking dead is one of the big ones um, and where, were, what was the question? I'm sorry.
1: Uh, the, the, uh, shelter in place. Are, are there any projects that you're kind of like not able to finish or work on right now because of your inability to, to do what you do?
3: Well, there's a lot of different ways that it's impacted. Like, uh, you know, I still, um, would love to go down to LA to work on some stop motion projects. And I was just chatting with some friends over at, uh, stupid buddy studios where they do robot chicken and a bunch of other shows
1: Ah. and
3: and they've pretty much shut down because you know you have to have the crew physically in one place for for that uh i mean i do a lot of stuff at home um personal personal you know or music video projects or just stuff for friends and i've been doing and or personal films and i'm just going crazy doing tons of that kind of work so i'm having a good time doing that Mm -hmm. but um in the CG world, you know, we're sort of ahead of the game, um, because, you know, CG artists have been moving. There's sort of been this virtual studio movement that's been gaining traction over the years where people have their own licenses at home and, uh, the work is sort of controlled through a central hub and the studios, you know, some studios have tend to exist, um, as virtual studios where where their their workforce is is working from home and that and that's been going on. There's a trend toward that that's been going on for a couple of um, for a decade or so now. So some studios are a bit ahead of the curve. Um, like some friends of mine in in the previous world in L.A. Um, they're they're just fine. You know they they've been working from home already, and so there's no slowdown. Um, for tippet we are a little bit behind the curve, but um, they're been very successful in a short amount of time, uh, getting, uh, a system that within the parameters, c- security is a big issue. Um, you know, with, with digital, uh, VFX work, you know, the studios and like Disney have a very strict uh, standard for, um, for digital you know, security so that their IP doesn't get out there.
1: Oh yeah. So, I can imagine.
3: With, yeah. So within those limitations, that, that's why it's hard for, for a studio like, a VFX house to, to set that up. So within those limitations, um, Tippett has is adapted pretty quickly. And a lot of people are working from home. Now me personally, I can only do a little bit of work because my wife is working from home. She works in a different industry and she's working from home full time and somebody has got to take care of the kids. So I'm the,
1: yeah,
3: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm the guy, you know, because, um, cause, uh, cause they don't really need me full time at Tippett right now. And, and so I'm pretty much the uh in-home school facilitator, the IT guy, the janitor and the lunch lady. <laughs> Did you hear I'm the lunch lady too. So that's uh, there you go. that's I wear those hats, you know, more or less uncomfortably, but um lunch lady is the is the one I'm easiest. I, I don't
2: one. know if I could picture you in a lunch lady outfit though.
3: <laughs> uh, it's, it's it's comfortable. <laughs>
0: Webster, is there anything, um, I guess what I'm wanting to ask you, is there a particular dream project, something that you would love to bring to the screen, whether it's a remake of something or something that nobody has ever brought to the screen that has been in your head and that you would love to do someday? Mm. Don't give
2: away any ideas. but
3: (laughs) 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 I won't. But there's a whole um drawer full of those karen i mean there's so many uh projects i'd love to do one of the ones that i you know i won't be giving away an idea and somebody else is going to do it anyway but i would love to do i've always wanted to do a stop motion version or even clay of a uh, devil dinosaur disney uh, oh yeah
2: mm.
0: the marvel
3: um yeah. Comic.
0: yeah yeah that would be great
3: so I probably won't do that, but, um, I'd love to do that. I, I, you know, there's another, there's a children's book that, um, I'd love to adapt into a really, you know, cute, um, clay animation style, you know, children's clay animation style, um, short film, or, or maybe half hour show. And that was, um, Sid Hoff's, uh, Danny and the dinosaur. I've always wanted mm, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, I have a bunch of personal projects that I'm, uh, working on. One of the, I'm, i I'm, Want to do a? I'm doing a zombie movie actually with sort of cartoony zombies uh, <laughs> that are a combination of puppet and um, and stop motion. So that's really fun. And I've always and I love you know I love the Italian zombie movies and, and and Dawn of the Dead. You know with the oh yeah the. Drumming, you know, it's synthetic soundtrack, and so I'm working with a musician friend, and and I've got my kids in it, <laughs> and and we're just making this funny zombie movie, um, and so that's the dream project that I'm actually doing, but it's 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 slowly in doing it slowly because um, because uh, you know of the uh, schooling and stuff,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: Because yeah, that's, serve my, lunch. that's my
3: dream lockdown project.
1: <laughs> Well, Webster, we're, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. And honestly, uh, I, I could I could go on for a few more days uh, yeah, just getting to know uh, you better and, and uh, some of the stuff that you've done and, and are doing. Um, we'll do a, a round robin. Bob, Karen, you have anything else uh, you wanted to ask Webster about before we get into our sensor sweep?
2: Well, did, did you want to rattle off like any of the other things you've done? I know you've done like some pretty famous shots in movies that I think a lot of the listeners would re- instantly recognize.
1: Sure. Well, I'll tell you what, too, Webster. I mean, go ahead and name them off, but we, we will have you back because I, I know you want to step into the monster garage uh, and and just take a look at everything that Bob has. So so I'm sure you'll be back on, but please go ahead. And rattle off some of those, uh, those projects and films.
3: Well... I, I'm actually uh, relieved. I was worried that I was going to be asked some, uh, some, uh, you know deep knowledge, uh, questions about Ultraman or Godzilla that I wasn't going to be able to (laughs) that. I'm a bad second
1: appearance. We went light on you this time. (laughs) Uh,
3: Thank you so much. Yeah. But I really want to see the monster garage. I've only seen it in pictures and I, and I'm bummed that I've never been there in person, but uh, I should also say that like some of the projects I've worked on, oftentimes, you know, you ask me what are some of the favorite, favorite projects to be associated with. Sometimes you have the best time working on the worst movie Right. So uh, one of the projects that was a later, uh, the second Henry Selleck project that I worked on was Monkey Bone for 20th Century Fox. Uh-huh. And it was a kind of an awful production. Like it was, um, uh, we got shut down right before Christmas and everybody was uh, going broke. And uh, it was sort of uh, the studio we were working at was uh, in a bad part of town. And uh, just everything <laughs> about it was sort of haphazard. But it was a great we had a great time doing it and the work that we did is pretty cool and what's funny is i wear my uh, monkey bone crew jacket out in the world now and people look at it and go i love that movie and it's like where were you
2: <laughs> right
3: it was in the theater two weeks and i and i and i still have the roger ebert um and uh, siskel review of it on tape somewhere and they just raked it over the coals. And, and the other movie that was in the theater at the same time, the other big movie was Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, starring <laughs> Johnson. And it lasted longer in the theater than Monkey Bone. Oh, jeez. So, oh, my God. Anyway, but we had a good time working on it and a great team. And then another movie I worked on later in the CG realm uh, at the orphanage was a Uwe Boll movie. You know, Uwe Boll. Uh, oh, yeah. Urban director. Um, and it was a movie where Burt Reynolds was the king and it also starred the guy from the Scooby-Doo movies who plays Shaggy um, and it also had the, the, the karate guy uh, uh, I can't remember his name anyway it was a good cast uh, and it had Ron Perlman too it had everybody oh wow and it was called "In the Name of the King," a dungeon siege tale, which was um, based on a video game. But it was this horrible movie, Bowl, as you would expect. And but we did some. We had a really good time working on it, and we did some really quite good uh, CG effects. We did this whole crowd system, and we had um, these this crowd of you know uh, hundreds of soldiers that we did in CG, and it looks really you know the effects look really good in an otherwise you know terrible movie. And that's something you do a lot in. In CG effects, you, you do the best parts of movies or, or even in stop motion. It, like if you look at some of those old movies um, that say like Project Unlimited worked on uh, the famous uh, VFX house in, in Hollywood, um, like uh, Journey to the Seventh Planet, you know, the best part of that movie is the rat monster. Oh, that's yeah. in just a few shots, you know, but it just goes by, you know, really quickly. And, and, and that's the whole reason you want to go see it, you know? Right. Anyway, what was the question again? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> well, no, I was just, of just the... naming
2: off some of the things you've done that, that probably listeners would instantly recognize.
3: Mm. Well, more recently, one of the things I did, I did the previs for, um, the planet of the apes movie where, um, what was it? It was number three in the Planet of the Apes series where, or was it the most recent one? It was the one where, uh, no, it was the second to the last one where uh, the bad guy, Koba, the bad monkey, he hops on a tank and it's a POV shot of the tank. And it's one really long, like 350 frame shot or longer actually of, of, of the, of the camera mounted to the tank. And, and it ends up with these, you know cg apes on it and it ends up crashing um through a building now i did the previs on it and then later when i was on the ted movies i ended up working with um one of the guys who was on set for it and and i verified that for the shoot um that they did indeed look at the previs and then finally you know of course um the effects were done by weta and i guess that was the uh, most number of iterations of any shot that they've ever done like something like I don't know two at least two hundred uh different you know versions of that, I think way more, but you know and that's nothing to be necessarily proud of, but um the shot is kind of really memorable, and so I was involved in the design early on, so that that's a good one um then of course, there's a lot of big shots in the host um I James and the giant Peach, I did the spider wrapping her um uh spider web up into a bundle to catch the the seagulls um what else? That's all that comes to... M- oh, Superman Returns, uh, which I didn't get a credit on. I, I did the shot of the, uh, the faster-than-a-speeding-bullet shot. Mm. Uh, I also worked on the bullet bouncing off Superman's eye, but I wasn't the only one. Like I didn't have a lot of creative input into that. That was actually designed by a, uh, a, a previous guy in L.A., and then uh, somebody else did the, the rigging, and, but I, I, w- I was involved in it, but, but not heavily. Um, Yeah. What else? Hmm. Oh, Planet Terror, the uh, Robert Rodriguez movie. Uh, We had a whole sequence in there. Uh, Well, I'll tell you. Here's what. Here's what it was. Um, A few years ago, I met Quentin Tarantino at a screening at uh, Skywalker Ranch, and one of my things, I I told him, I I have to tell you this. uh, I animated your penis, and in. Yeah. So in Planet Terror, uh, in the Robert Rodriguez segment, um, uh, Quentin Tarantino plays one of these infected soldiers who then uh, is threatening to rape um, Rose McGowan. But uh, as he's approaching her, he's melting. And there's this whole... cg penis that is melting and robert rodriguez had a very specific way he wanted it to move like taffy falling and so we would have the, you know we had a whole crew on it at the orphanage uh, doing this uh, melting penis sequ- sequence and so of course when i finally met quentin tarantino i said i gotta tell you this because i worked on your <laughs> yeah <laughs> i worked on it so anyway he, he thought that was funny of course um and then we also worked on, uh, at the orphanage, uh, we had a good rapport with Robert Rodriguez. Um, and we, we did a bunch of shots on, on, uh, planet terror. Um, and we did, uh, for grindhouse, you know, the two, the two film, um, package. We, we also did, uh, some work on death proof, which I think is one of my favorite Quentin Tarantino movies. And the work we did on that was fairly seamless. It was just, um, you know, they had, a. um, they had a sort of a air cannon to make the car flip over that they needed, uh, repl- uh, you know, sort of masked over. It was basically like uh, uh, rig removal type type of work, uh, invisible CG work. Um, but we did a lot of work on on the uh, on the Planet Terror sequence from Robert Rodriguez, including uh, flipping a tow truck scene and uh, the faces of the actors sort of bubbling, and, and then of course the melting penis. Yep, my big. Off that
2: note. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: well, uh, I'll tell you, Webster. You, you left uh, great memories with us before that story, and and now they're even greater.
3: <laughs> <laughs> or not? It's okay. It's okay, you know.
1: It's uh, it's interesting the kind of work that you, you go from James and the Giant Peach to uh, Planet Terror. Uh, you know, it's interesting though about Death Proof because. I'd read somewhere that there's a lot of, uh, digital effects that go into movies. Like, you know, the last, um, it wasn't Rocky. It was, uh, his, um, no, not Rambo. It was the kid. Yeah. And, and there was like 250 effects in that. Film and, and sometimes it's just cleaning stuff up or making something more defined or, you know, it's, it's not always like the, the sword through the skull or the, the spider jumping out, you know, from the shadows or whatever. So that was that was interesting. You know, every, everything needs an effect.
3: Well, there's a lot. I mean, filmmaking today is a lot, you know, it's not easy, but it's a lot easier than it used to be because it's so, you know, you can fix little things that um, that would cause you to have to do reshoots. Like one of the things I remember a film that I'm a big fan of, you know, the Time Machine, uh, George Powell's Time Machine. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a scene, which was, was very low budget, like $790,000, mm-hmm. uh, something like that, uh, just under $800,000. Um, there's a scene where the actor, I can't remember his name, but uh, he, Robert, some, he cuts his hand on the prop, on the Time Machine prop, and he just keeps um, acting, you know, but you clearly see the blood on his hand and on the prop as the scene is going and they couldn't you know for that time there's nothing you could do it's just in the movie and you hope people don't notice but these days of course there are a lot of subtle little effects like that that uh, that are easier-ish to do they are easy yeah
1: yeah yeah. that's cool it's interesting Um, well again Webster thanks for, for being on the show we look forward to having you on um physically in studio or, or in the, uh, uh, monster garage. Um, but, uh, yeah, this, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing, uh, some of your stories and knowledge and, uh, don't forget those selfies. <laughs>
3: oh, hey, I'll take them right after this. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we got to have fun during the, uh, the lockdown. If, if you can't have fun in a lockdown, I mean, what are we going to do when the zombies hit, you know, how are we going yeah, right. to, <laughs> yeah, you know,
2: well, that's the thing. We're all sitting around usually going, oh, man, I got to go to work. Oh, I got to work. And now it's like, gee, I wish I could go to work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, uh, for, they're having me work from home, my day job. And it's like, well, you know, do I put on clothes or just stay in my pajamas? I don't know. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but, but anyway.
3: Just, and what your pajamas are, of course.
1: So, yeah. <laughs> Star Wars, of course.
3: <laughs> oh, there you go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this is the point in our show where we have our sensor sweep, and uh, this episode's sensor sweep uh, goes over to our reconnaissance officer, uh, kick it up to the satellite. Karen, take it away.
0: Well, Larry, this time around, I've got this huge book, this incredible tome, that is part of uh, author Mark Cushman's These Are the Voyages series. So ah, yeah, I, I know you're familiar with them, and I can't at the moment recall if I've spoken about them on the show before, but these are the voyages. Mark Cushman has written uh, three books already in the series that cover the three seasons of original Star Trek. They're all very good books. I, I highly recommend them, but this new book that has just come out, is uh, subtitled Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, 1970, 1975. So mm. what do we get in this? It's a, it's kind of a mishmash of all the things Gene Roddenberry was doing right after Star Trek and just before Star Trek, the motion picture. So you get uh, some of the uh, movies he did, like uh, Planet Earth, Genesis 2, the Quester tapes. You get... A whole bunch of the book dedicated to Star Trek, the animated series. Mm. So some very interesting stuff on that. And then even some things that didn't happen, which I didn't know about, like the fact that right after um, the second season of Star Trek, he was working on a script for a Tarzan movie, which never happened. (laughs) Um, And then some other stuff that – we would probably have to save for Planet 8 After Dark, like his work on a a film called Pretty Maids All in a Row, uh, which had Angie Dickinson and Rock Hudson. I won't say much more about that. But anyway, uh, for the Star Trek completists out there, it's a a very worthwhile read, and Mark Cushman has done a great job with all of his Star Trek books, so highly recommended.
1: I like the other uh, books about Seasons 1, 2, and 3. Uh, so you were saying Tarzan?
0: Yeah, apparently Gene Roddenberry was uh, a big Tarzan fan. He had read Edgar Rice Burroughs books growing up, and so he wanted to do Tarzan. And he had some very specific ideas about how Tarzan should be done. He didn't like huh. the uh, a lot of the... Um, Tarzan movies that had already been made with the you know me Tarzan you Jane kind of stuff. He wanted to be more um, faithful to the original books. So, uh, but yeah, in, he in also the book,
2: in the books he was very eloquent. He you
0: know right like there an English gentleman him, type. Yeah, there was a side of him that was in the jungle, but then there was the English. Uh, you know, nobleman side. So he wanted to do that. But then Gene, you know, there was this side of Gene that was very focused on, uh, how shall I put it?
2: Uh, Getting the bleeper ready.
0: Yeah, getting the bleeper (laughs) ready. Let me just put it, you know, he, he was a, he was a lusty man. Let's just put it that way. He was full of passion and he wanted his projects to be the same way. And so, yeah, let's just say it's interesting reading yes. all the way around. Mm-hmm.
2: We'll
1: leave it there. Well, much The Tarzan
2: thing, us. though, just hitting on that really quick. When was Greystoke? When did that come out? That was like in the 70s, wasn't it? Uh, no, that was the 80s. Like
0: early 80s, 80s oh, okay. right? There was yeah. the Bo Derek movie, I think, was in the 70s. Ew. Yeah. And then I think Greystoke was early 80s with, what, Christopher Lambert? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just wondering if that somehow morphed into into Greystoke, but
0: I don't think so. I I think because uh, his script actually it seemed like it incorporated a lot of science fiction elements with sort of these lost cities and uh, kind of I don't know lost technology, all this kind of stuff. That
2: well, in the books, I know Tarzan did go to the Earth's core, and
0: mm-hmm.
2: I don't know. I don't think he ever mixed up with john carter but
0: yeah but there were a lot of a lot of elements that i think uh roddenberry took from the books that just haven't materialized in any of the films yet
1: interesting Mm -hmm. all right kids well if you get a chance pick it up let us know what you think sounds good yeah out on that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at wwwplanet where you can get more information on this episode's topic.
0: For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet 8 Cast.
1: Or on Facebook at facebook.com
2: slash planet8podcast.
1: We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8 signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end.